Well, hopefully those in the back can see the slides. I've tried to keep the, you know, the font on the large side. So, and at least the first number of slides are in your handout, or, or uh, a portion of them anyway. But I do have quite a few during, you know, that we'll look at during the week. So as you can see from, from the title on, on this slide, our subject this morning and for the week is Elisha the prophet, or the man of God, as he's referred to a total of 29 times in First and Second Kings, where we find the record of his life and works. Specifically, we would like to focus on his miracles and the lessons that we can draw from those miracles and his life in general. Before we get to the record of Elisha in 1 Kings, let's turn to 1 Peter, if you would. First Peter chapter 1. We're turning here because we believe here in the words of the Apostle Peter, we find the essence of what we want to talk about this week as we draw from the life and miracles of this great prophet. Peter explains that the prophets inquired and searched diligently for our salvation. Let's read beginning in verse 9. 1 Peter 1, nine. Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory of that should follow. The Spirit of Christ that was in them. We hope, Lord willing, to show that indeed the Spirit of Christ was in Elisha, particularly regarding the circumstances of his miracles and the lessons that we can draw from them. Peter goes on to say in verse 12 that their testimony was ministered not unto themselves, but unto us, us, here and now. The things that are written concerning the testimony of Elisha then were recorded, certainly for a purpose. They are interesting stories, this is true, but they are so much more. They represent, we submit, the same mission that was given to Jesus in his ministry. The testimony of Elisha can teach us we pray of the Spirit, the Spirit that must be found in us, that must be found in us, as it is and was in Jesus. For it is, as Peter tells us, the Spirit that brings salvation. The salvation the prophets inquired of and searched diligently after. I think we'd all agree that Elijah his predecessor, was unique in Bible history. Unique as a person of God. 
I would submit it's just, it's just like Elijah, that Elisha, too, was unique. When the new prophet comes upon the scene, we quickly discover that he was very much his own person and not just a repeat of his predecessor. One author called him an original phenomenon. And so Elisha is unique, and particularly in terms of his miracles. No other person, no other man of God, performed more miracles in Scripture, except, of course, our Lord Jesus. And the purpose of these miracles was like his mission. It was to establish at that time, and certainly for us, that Yahweh was in greater, is, is greater than any other god, all the false gods of Canaan, and particularly Baal at that time, and especially for his people, a witness to his people who were very apostate. In terms of my references, as you see listed first is a book by Brother David Wood, of course no relation, brother from England. Uh, this book was a compilation of articles that appeared in the testimony in the early 80s, I think a total of 25 articles, some of you may recall them. The title, as you find listed, it's Elisha the Neglected Prophet. And he calls him that, or titles his book that, because he's primarily comparing Elijah to Elisha, and saying there's been so much more written, so much more study of Elijah. And so he felt, in that sense, that Elisha was a bit neglected, and so chose to, I think, make a very good work of the life and, and miracles of Elisha. I did find the only other Christadelphian book, and actually it's more of a booklet, uh, by Brother Edmund Green, that covers both Elijah and Elisha, and actually more than half of it was on Elijah. And like many of us do, I, re I did refer to Brother Mansfield's story of the Bible. In volume three, there are five chapters dealing with, with Elisha. And three non-Christophian texts, which I found, as you would expect, of lesser value, but used to some extent. And then finally, Brother uh, Bollinger's notes in the Companion Bible referred to those as well. I said the first few slides, not all of them, are in, in the handout that you can refer to. I don't, well, I don't think this one is not. But, um, there are really only three periods of miracles in Scripture. The first being that of the time of Moses. I think we'd all agree with that. Uh, when he was in Egypt with the plagues and, and certainly during the wilderness journey. The second one, which we'll be referring to this week, is this period of time of Elijah and Elisha. And the last one that we, is, is quite obvious, of course, is the third, the third period being that of Jesus and the apostles in the first century. Now, I did admit one uh, exceptional period of miracles, which was quite intense but, but short. And what, what would that be? 
perhaps the greatest miracles to date? Well, that would be the time of Christ. What? I think I heard it. Think early. Creation, yes. <laughs> now, we are looking for another period of miracles, are we not? And we certainly pray that it's going to be coming very soon. So before we get into the narrative in 1 Kings, we'd like to set the context a bit of Elisha's background and his career as a prophet. And this, this one is in your handout. Elisha was a prophet, certainly like his predecessor, and he was a prophet unto Israel, or the northern kingdom. We'll read in a moment that he was from a small village in the northern Jordan Valley called Abel Maloah, which means in the Hebrew, meadow of the dance, or dancing. And we'll show that on, on our map in a moment. So Elisha ministered, we believe, for a total of over 60 years, during, primarily during the reigns of kings Joram, Jehu, and Jehoaz. So he started, we believe, sometime actually before 850 B.C. when he was called by Elisha unto some, somewhere around 800 B.C. And it was an ungodly period of Israel's history. The leaders of God's people, as we know, the kings were more interested, it seems, in their military might and, the vic and victories rather than serving Yahweh. And what religion did exist, unfortunately, was dominated by Baal worship, and even access to the temple in Jerusalem was cut off by some of the kings of Judah. But thankfully, there was a faithful remnant, a faithful remnant that was referred to by Elijah and quantified as the 7,000 that did not bow their knee to Baal. And some of these faithful ones, as we will read concerning Elisha, were known as the sons of the prophets. And they took on a more predominant role during his time. Now this map, I think, is the last page in your handout. I don't know how legible all the, the print is, but I did make a copy because I know it can be a little difficult to see it particularly from the back. But here we, we just want to show where Elijah was, or Elisha was born, this town of Abel Maloath in the northern Jordan Valley, central Israel. A pretty quiet place as far as we know. But before Elijah goes to call his successor, Elisha. We find him mentioned just before in 1 Kings 19. So let's turn, turn that up. 1 Kings 19, and we'll just read verse 16. Jehu, the son of Nimshai, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And he's 
And this, of course, referring to Elijah. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. So Elisha was to be one, including the other person mentioned, Haziel, in, in the preceding verse, one of three people that Elijah would anoint. In the case of Elisha, the Lord tells Elijah that he was to anoint him to be a prophet in his room. A prophet in his room or in his place. And certainly we know this means he was to be become the next great prophet of Israel. Next, we would like to, before we get into the life of Elisha and his call, kind of set the stage a bit, and we'll be looking forward, uh, giving a little preview of his life as far as how he compares to Elijah. First off, we know they shared similar names. Elijah's Name means God is salvation, whereas Elisha is God is the Lord. But that is largely where the similarity stops. In terms of their temperament, I would submit, as hopefully we'll see, that Elisha was a calm person overall. He was quieter in his demeanor compared to Elijah. Elijah, as we probably recall, was rather harsh at times. I mean, it was necessary to be that way. He was unyielding and outspoken as he demanded reformation of his people, as he denounced their sin, proclaimed judgments, and called down vengeance from heaven. And he stirred up much of Israel as he intended in the process, and as Yahweh wanted him to do. Perhaps after doing all these things, it made the labor and teaching of this quieter and gentler Elisha more effective. And so Elijah did act as a forerunner to Elisha, preparing the way before him, just as John the Baptist did for the Messiah. And Elijah, we are told, will do the same for Christ at his second coming. Elijah then, we would say, had to plow new ground as his first great prophet of Israel. And Elisha then followed in his footsteps, both literally and figuratively. In terms of background, we know very little of Elijah. We don't know anything about his parents, his upbringing. All we know is that he was a Tishbite from the land of Gilead. We are told something more of Elisha and his background. That he was raised on a farm. His father was Shaphat. And this may explain why Elisha was more sociable and friendly. Because he at least was raised in these comfortable surroundings. Intended to lead, whereas Elijah, it seems, tended to lead a life of separateness more so than Elisha.
In the first mention of Elijah, we find him, we might say, bursting on the scene, as you might recall. If you recall the circumstances, he, he confronted King Ahab and pronounced that there would be this three-and-a-half-year-long drought. Whereas Elisha became a prophet in a relatively slow transition, as we'll find out in a moment. A transition from a farmer to a minister under Elijah. And after his anointing, when the mantle was passed before him, before his first miracle. And finally, and probably least importantly, in terms of their appearance, they were different, as, as we can surmise at least, that Elijah described, was described as having long hair, which he vowed to never cut. Compared to Elisha, as we'll see perhaps tomorrow, concerning his third miracle, as you might recall, what, what was he referred to, or what was he mocked as? Bald head, right. So different in appearance. And we can be sure that the earlier experiences of Elisha's life, as well as this, this disposition of mind, had tended to prepare him, that he had been unconsciously trained for this role by the providence of God. He led a peaceful, but certainly an active, rural life, growing up under the combined influence of natural surroundings and a simple family piety. So we ask this question, is Elisha a type of Christ? This too is in your handout. Should we consider Elisha as a type of Christ? We know analogies are made between Elijah and John the Baptist. We know that John the Baptist was the forerunner of Christ. And as we have also mentioned, already mentioned, that Elijah will be the forerunner of Christ at his second coming. So we don't think it's much of a stretch to consider Elisha as the successor of Elijah, as a type of Christ, who in turn succeeded, that is Christ, as Christ succeeded John the Baptist. So we'd like to look, again, before we get into the life of Elijah, some parallels between Christ and Elisha. First also, in terms of their names, Elisha exemplified his name as one who saves, as we'll find out, one who shows the way into salvation, as Peter told us in 1 Peter 1. Although certainly he did this in a small measure compared to the antitypical Jesus, or Yeshua. God is salvation. That's what Elisha's name means, as we already mentioned. And we know that Jesus, or Yeshua, also means Savior. As we examine the life of Elisha, we will see, Lord willing, the characteristics that the prophet displayed in his capacity as God's chosen and anointed servant, just as certainly Christ was. He began his ministry at the River Jordan, 
just as Christ did after his baptism. In terms of their miracles, both their public, first public miracles involved water. In the case of Elisha, it was the healing of the spring at Jericho. In the case of Jesus, turning water into wine at the wedding of Cana. Elijah's, Elisha's ministry, as we'll find, was in large measure to the poor, the unfortunate, as he manifested mercy and compassion to those of his, both the Gentiles as well as his fellow Hebrews. And through his preaching and his miracles, many of which we'll find have a remarkable similarity to that of the Lord Jesus. And finally, that Elisha witnessed the fruit of his labors in the growing number of disciples, or as they were termed, sons of the prophets, to whom he ministered throughout Israel. So let's pick up the story of Elisha again in 1 Kings 19. We want to read beginning in verse 19 of that chapter. 1 Kings 19, verse 19. So he, again, that is Elijah, departed thence and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him. And he with the twelfth, and Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow thee. And he said unto them, Go back again, for what have I done to thee? And he returned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slew them and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen and gave unto the people, and they did eat. Then he arose and went after Elijah and ministered unto him. From this set of verses, we'd like to look at four points, consider four aspects of what we just read a little further. The first one is the symbolic casting of Elijah's mantle upon Elisha. Secondly, the request to say goodbye to his parents. And what did this indicate? Did it, in fact, as you would read this quickly, you might, cons- might think that this indicated a hesitation on the part of Elisha to follow Elijah, his, his mentor, to leave the settled peace of the farm, the security of his family. We can certainly relate to possibly being quite hesitant to to do that. And also, what was Elijah's response to this request of Elisha? Thirdly, Elisha's sacrificing his own oxen, giving them to the people in a form of farewell celebration, it seems. And apparently using, as it says, the instruments of the oxen or the yoke and possibly even the plow as fuel for the fire when he boiled these 12 oxen. 
And finally, it's interesting that there is no mention of anointing as such, at least in that literal sense of anointing that was to take place as we read concerning Elijah that he was to anoint Elisha. So we'd like to look at these four points a little further and see how, in fact, we believe they are related and they support the character of this man, the character of this great prophet, in fact, both of these great prophets, Elijah and Elisha. First, we believe it's, it's obvious from his reaction that Elisha knew exactly what it meant when he found Elisha, Elijah passing this mantle, his cloak. And we, we figure he knew exactly what it meant as he runs after, as Elisha runs after Elijah and then asks permission to say goodbye to his parents. But what of this request? As we said, did it indicate he was hesitant to follow Elijah? What was on his mind when he said, I want to say goodbye, I want to kiss my mother and father goodbye? And we think of the words of Christ concerning that, as we showed in Luke chapter 9. We believe, and I submit that he did this out of love, out of love for his parents and his duty to comply with the fifth commandment, honor thy mother and father. They had raised him, and he wanted to show his affection and his thankfulness to them before he left. And that's all this was about. He wanted to kiss them goodbye. But what of Elijah's response? It seems fairly negative, does it not? When he says at the end of verse 20, Go back again, for what have I done to thee? Brother Mansfield says that this is a Hebrew idiom. And it's actually better translated, Go, but mind you return again, for see what a great privilege I have given you. So, if we consider this Hebrew idiom, and we know that Elisha immediately followed after Elijah, we conclude there was, in fact, no hesitation on the part of Elisha. And the third point brings this out even more. Where we have proof there was no doubt in his mind, no thought of coming back home, for what does he do? He takes his oxen and boils them in sacrifice and celebration, and burns the yoke and possibly even the plow as fuel for the fire. Elisha was determined to follow Elijah, to follow him wherever he went and do whatever Elijah asked him to do as he led him. We fully believe he knew, in fact, there was no going back at this point. There was no reluctance on the part of Elisha to put his hand to the plow, as was referred to in exhortation this morning, to not look back. He knew that there was a greater work to be done, a greater plowing in the fields of Yahweh that was far more important than what he was doing at his father's farm. 
So we conclude then that the response from Elijah was only confirming that his call was irrevocable. And finally, what of the anointing that Elijah was to do? We find him casting his mantle upon the new prophet. Now this would not appear to be actual anointing, would it? It seems to be more, as Brother Wood indicated, more of an adoption. That Elijah was adopting him, perhaps as his spiritual father at this point. And actually, we find Elisha addressing him a couple of times as father. We know for a fact that Elisha was chosen of God. And in this sense, it is in this sense that he was anointed. Anointed to be the successor of Elijah as the next great prophet. And finally, we believe that Elisha's calling or I would submit that it's, it reminds us of the calling of some of Christ's disciples, particularly Peter, Andrew, James, and John, as they left their nets just as Elisha left his plow and his oxen and his quiet life of farming. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The words of Paul. First Corinthians chapter one, twenty six to twenty nine. For ye see your calling, brethren, how many not how that many, not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Thinking of Elisha. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. This was the mind and the background of Elisha. As we read it, going back to 1 Kings 19, the end of verse 21. It said, Then he set out, Elisha set out to follow Elijah and become his attendant, as it reads in the NIV. And so that's exactly what the early years of Elisha were all about ministering unto Elijah and being his apprentice, the elder prophet. I will not leave thee. He mentions this three times. We'll get to that, refer to that a little more in a moment. I will not leave thee. In 2 Kings 3.11, he refers, it refers there to Elisha as the one that poured water onto the hands of Elijah. This is a Hebrew idiom for ministering to one's physical needs. So Elijah was filling that role as well as being mentored by his elder prophet. It was a time then of humble, obscure service, learning at the feet of his master, listening to him, not letting a single word fall to the ground. 
These were the early years of the ministry of Elisha, as he lived in the shadow of the man of God. We're not sure how long this period of service and apprenticeship was. It could have been as many as ten years, but certainly at least four or five. And it's a safe assumption that although he is not specifically mentioned in the interim, that Elisha was a constant companion to Elijah during this entire time until he's mentioned again in 2 Kings chapter 2. Elijah was resolved then to pass on his role to the kind of person who could be trusted, could be trusted with the office of the great prophet as a fellow servant, a fellow servant of his God, Yahweh of Israel. And that is precisely what Elisha proved to be, a fellow servant. Under his mentorship, always, and more importantly, a servant unto the one true God of Israel. We too, as we know, we must be fellow servants. People who take on these kinds of roles, pouring water onto the hands of others, things that need to be done, responsibilities that we have, as ministers, as fellow servants, doing what needs to be done, no matter what it is. Setting up chairs, locking the building at the end of service, helping someone when they are sick, whatever it might be, tending to their yard or household chores, whatever they need help with, or making that phone call or sending that card when it is most needed pouring water onto the hands. An endless number of thankless and quite unspectacular tasks that need to be done. So we learn in the first verse of 2 Kings chapter 1 that Elijah's, Elijah's ministry was to come to a sudden and unusual end. Let's turn over Turn back to 2 Kings. Chapter 2 and verse 1. And it came to pass when the Lord would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Now, at this point in Elijah's life, we don't really believe he was old and, and ready to die. He was not worn out and, and physically at the end of his life. And in fact, this journey that they're about to make was 40 miles long as they traveled from Gilgal to the River Jordan. And Elisha was determined to go with him as he knew it would be their last journey together. And we can imagine that they had become very close companions, as we said, by this time. Now what we find here in, in the proof of Elisha's faith, even at this point, is that he wanted to stay with his master. And beginning in verse 2, we find Elijah telling Elisha, in fact, to stay behind. Tarry here, I pray thee. For the Lord hath sent me unto first Gilgal, then Bethel, 
and then Jericho, or Beth, or going from Gilgal to Bethel, Jericho, and finally to the river Jordan. Each time, each time Elijah says this to Terry here, Elisha responds, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And we ask first, why did Elijah not want Elisha to be with him? Perhaps he wanted some privacy in these last days of his life. Maybe he wanted to spare Elisha the pain and distress from witnessing him being taken away. Or was it a test, in fact, for Elisha's resolve that it, to see how he would respond to this request? To see how committed he was, his love for and his attachment to his master. Three times he was told to stay. Three times Elisha vowed his utter commitment. For Elisha leaving Elijah, it seems, was not an option. And two things we submit tied him. First, as he says, as surely as the Lord lives, he feared Yahweh, and he wanted to stay with Elijah. And secondly, his love for his masters, as he says, as you live, as you, and as you live, I will not leave you. These factors did, in fact, firm up the resolve of his will, which was voiced repeatedly in his statements, I will not leave you, Elijah. I will not leave you. I will not leave you. We ask ourselves, do we have this commitment? Do we have this kind of loyal relationship to our father and to his son? I will not leave you. So they set out on this journey, shown here on the map. As they go from Gilgal to Bethel to Jericho and then to the Jordan, finally to the Jordan River, we set about 40 miles in length. So going on in chapter 2, we come to verse 9. Second Kings 2, verse 9. And it came to pass when they were gone over that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. A very thought-provoking question that Elijah asked and an even more thought-provoking response from Elisha. Elijah, knowing his departure was imminent, asked, What can I do for you before I am taken from you? Again, was this a test of Elisha's character, his real ambition and motives, at this critical point in the transition between these two great prophets? Just like Solomon, he could have asked for many things, He could have asked for power, just outright power or prestige, but he didn't. He simply said, I want a double portion of thy spirit 
to rest upon him. Again, we believe this response showed Elisha's true character. What was this double portion? It's the same word that's used in the context of the inheritance of the firstborn son upon the death of his father under the law. Simply translated, double portion means two parts. Two parts of the inheritance. Elisha wanted to be regarded then as Elijah's heir, his successor, as the true prophet of Israel. He wanted to inherit the spirit that Elijah had received from Yahweh as one appointed and anointed to succeed him. And in receiving this double portion, he became as the firstborn. And again, we think perhaps this is another type of Christ. In verse 10, reading on, we note that Elijah responds that he had asked a hard thing. And why was it a hard thing? Perhaps it was because he knew it was beyond his power to grant it. It was something only Yahweh could bestow as he received his spirit also from Yahweh. And Elijah goes on to give one stipulation for receiving the double portion of his of his spirit. He says, if you will see me when I'm taken from you, it will be yours. That is, the double portion will be yours if you see me when I'm taken away. Otherwise, you will not receive it. There was nothing arbitrary about this. It had to do with Elisha's ability to see what could not be otherwise seen. As we said, his power, Elijah's power, came to him because of his faith. His eyes were fixed upon those things that are unseen. And the same, we submit, the same would be required of Elisha. An ordinary person standing in that place would have seen nothing but the sudden disappearance of the prophet. But Elisha was not an ordinary person of ordinary faith. He saw the invisible, what would otherwise be invisible host of Yahweh, we submit. He had learned to fix his eyes at this point on those things unseen, to see indeed through the eyes of faith. Now, it's interesting, I think quite quite a valid point, that Bollinger mentions that it's probably more than coincidence, and we certainly agree with this, that Elisha performed twice as many miracles as Elijah, and suggesting that, in fact, this was providential. So you have a page on your handout that does list the 16 miracles of Elisha. Here in this slide, we show those 16 miracles alongside the eight of Elijah. We believe it is, in fact, quite remarkable and certainly providential. Whether this was exactly what was meant by the double portion, it is, in fact, the case that Elisha worked twice as many miracles as his predecessor, Elijah. During the 
week we, we want to touch on at least, whether we'll have time to get into the details of all 16 of these, we would like to touch on each of them and go, on, go into a little more detail on the, the ones marked in red. And so the relationship of these two prophets ends as Elijah is taken up in the whirlwind and Elisha witnesses the angelic host, a demonstration, as we said, of his faith. And let's read of that in chapter 2 and verse 12. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him, that is Elijah, no more. And he took hold of his clothes and rent them in two pieces. As we read on in verse 13, Elisha turns to leave the scene of Elijah's departure and he sees his mantle that had fallen from the prophet as he was taken up in the whirlwind. Elisha picks up this symbol of the prophetic office as he knows it is now his own cloak as the new prophet of Israel. And so, without much warning, Elisha was ready to make the transition from minister to prophet. The circumstances had changed rather quickly as he receives his cue to step from the wings as minister to the center stage. His time had come. No more mentoring. No more learning from his master. No more going back to his farm. Elijah was gone, but Elisha was not left bereft, nor impoverished or powerless. He had the double portion of Elisha's spirit, and a great work lay before him, a life's work as the new prophet of Israel, a daunting task, but he was prepared for it. He was accustomed, even from as a child, to hard labor growing up on his father's farm. But this would be even harder work, spiritual work of a different kind. But being with Elijah the last several years had prepared him for it, and he was ready to take on the duties being passed on to him. In verse 14, we have another remarkable incident. It's Elijah's first miracle. 2 Kings 2.14 And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and smote the waters and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And it seems in other translations that he actually smotes it a second time after asking, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he had smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither, and Elijah, Elisha went over. This was actually the same as the last miracle of Elijah that's recorded in verse 8. But Elisha's power did not lie in the imitation of his mentor. There was nothing in the 
in the power or the or in, in that mantle or the methods in which he struck the water. We know where the power came from. For it seems the waters of the river did not part until the upon the first mighty. So Elisha cries out in desperation, Where now is the Lord, the God of Israel? And with his faith and confidence restored, he strikes the water a second time, and it parts to the right and to the left, and he crosses over. This sign was evidence then to the sons of the prophet that Elisha had come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So we read on in verse 15. And when the sons of the prophets which were to view at Jericho saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah doth rest on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. We'll end there for today.